Amen. Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet, my name's Aaron. I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Wellspring. Again, it's great to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. It's going to be continuing on in our journey through the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going to start. And as we kind of begin our time this morning, let me start by asking you a question. How many of you like Star Wars? Any, any Star Wars fans? How many of you like The Mandalorian? Right? The Mandalorian, it's one of the few shows that my wife and I actually watch. It's one of our favorite shows. And the thing is, I have this really good friend who started watching the new Star Wars movies, the ones that just came out the past few years, and The Mandalorian, without actually ever seeing the classics, the ones from, you know, a number of years ago. And before, he could, before I could reprimand him for never actually seeing Star Wars, he had all these questions about, who's this person? Why is this happening? What's going on here? All these questions. I'm like, dude, if we actually want to be friends, you need to actually watch Star Wars. And before he could, we had to have a conversation, like, go watch it and be kind of filled in with the backstory, and then you'll actually understand what's happening in these newer movies. In kind of a similar way, thinking about the storyline of the Bible, that's kind of what we've been trying to do in this series through the Old Testament. You know, sometimes we approach our English Bibles and we, like, immediately jump to a gospel, read a story or two about Jesus, you know, read a paragraph from Paul, and forget that three-quarters of our English Bible is the Old Testament. Important stuff that's come before Jesus and Paul that we really need to grasp and understand. And even more in particular, for our text this morning, the passage that we're going to be diving into today, I would say is that this passage is key and fundamental to understanding the rest of the storyline of the Bible. Without understanding Genesis 11 and 12, it's like jumping into the new Star Wars movies without actually seeing and and watching the classics. So with that said, I want to invite us to turn again to Genesis 11. And we're going to read about a paragraph or so from Genesis 11 before we jump into Genesis chapter 12. So Genesis 11, starting in verse 1, the text says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And there they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick of stone and bit them for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and tower with which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the whole earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth. Now, pause right there. What we're kind of looking at this morning is that kind of semi-famous story that many of you probably know as the Tower of Babel. And we'll get to in a second why I think that name isn't actually the most 100% accurate for this story. But anyway, I want to point out a few things from this story. First, notice what, is the, what are these folks' motivation for building this tower? Why are they wanting to build this tower that, quote, ascends to the heavens? Well, if you look at verse 4, it says that they want to build this tower so that they can build a name for themselves. 
They want to build this kind of reputation and name and this status, or maybe in, our, in today's language, a brand for themselves, if you will. They want to have this, this status, that, and they're going to build this tower so they can have this name. In biblical parlance, that's kind of language for reputation and character and status. Okay? So on the one hand, they're building this tower to build a name for themselves. Now, if building this tower so that they can have a name for themselves is what they want to do, notice what they don't want to do. Later on in that passage, the text says that they, they don't want to be scattered across the face of the earth. Which is in exact contradiction to what God said to the first humans in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Which gets at what Genesis 11 is actually all about. It's the culmination of human rebellion. All the, the known peoples of the world are congregating together, trying to have unity on man's terms, which never goes well. Trying to have unity on man's terms in defiance against God. To build a name for oneself and to completely disregard all that God has said and done up until this point. Now, think about this. How does God respond to this story? If the Tower of Babel is this story, this culmination of human rebellion that started in Genesis 3 with a pair of humans rebelling against God, which now culminated in all of the peoples, all of the nations of the world rebelling against God, how is God going to respond to this rebellion, this defiance, if you will? Well, the text says in Genesis 11 that the Lord comes down and sees what's going on, and from there, the text says that he scattered and confused their language. He confused their language, which is like a, a kind of a, a geeky wordplay going on there. Babble and confused are kind of the same word. So literally, the text says that God babbled their language. God babbled and confused them. And that's why this Tower of Babel, we often call it the Tower of Babel. Because they're, they're babbling at this point is kind of the idea. And so God's response is to come down and disperse them from over the face of the, of the, of the, of the earth. Now, let's think about this for a second. Genesis 11, again, is this culmination of human rebellion. But how is God going to actually address the problem of human rebellion at this point? What's God going to actually do about all the nations coming together at this point? Now, if we continue on in Genesis 11, we're not going to read all of it here. If you kind of go down to the end of Genesis 11, you're going to notice your favorite part of the Bible, a genealogy. And in this genealogy, you're going to come to this point and recognize that there's, a, there's, a, there's one family. The family of Abraham is going to come out of this story, the Tower, of Babel, the Tower of Babel. Now, let's talk about for a second this name, Babel. This is the exact same word that's used all throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible for Babylon. Yes, that Babylon. The Babylon that Israel ends up going into exile and taken captive by the end of the Old Testament. And notice that other detail earlier in the passage, I think it was in verse 2, where, where the text says that they all gathered at the plains of Shinar. The plains of Shinar. Now, like, why are we being told details like that? Well, if you kind of look through the rest of the Hebrew Bible, in particular Daniel chapter 1, the plains of Shinar are in and around the area of Babylon. And so what's happening here is that here's the human rebellion that's culminating at the tower. I like to call this story actually the Tower of Babylon. This is the Tower of Babylon where human rebellion is kind of being epitomized and being kind of conglomerated together. And it's out of Babylon, it's out of this story of Babylon that God is going to choose one family. We're going to get to this in a second. In Genesis chapter 12, it's the family of Abraham. And even from the family of Abraham, this is really key to understand. The family of Abraham has its origins. Abraham's family has its origins out of Babylon. Out of, even the text says that at the end of Genesis 11, that Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldeans. 
another name, another phrase to describe the area in and around Babylon. And so God's response to human rebellion at the Tower of Babylon is to choose and pick one family, the family of Abraham, and we're going to see in Genesis 12, to be a blessing to the nations. Now, with that said, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, especially this first paragraph, is what I think one of the key stories in the Old Testament. If we miss this paragraph, it's like watching the new Star Wars movies without actually understanding and seeing the classics. So Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, the text says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, we're gonna, I'm just going to start calling him Abraham because eventually he's going to be called Abraham later. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors or curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, notice a couple things from this paragraph. Notice first off, notice what God is going to give Abraham. A number of things. Land, blessing, but there's also another thing in particular. God tells Abraham that I'm going to give you a great name. Now, remember what we just read in Genesis 11. Remember the motivation for the nations coming together to build that tower? It was to build the tower so they could achieve a great name on their own. And here in Genesis 12, this great name is as a gift from God. It's not something Abraham has to achieve or reach for on his own. And I think there's a lot we could learn from in that. This, this idea, and sometimes in our modern culture, of wanting to achieve and attain a great name or reputation or brand on our own versus allowing God to give that to us in his way, in his timing. All right, so that's the, one of the first things that we see from this story. Abraham is going to be given as a gift this great name. Now, second, I don't know if you noticed this, but as we were reading just those three short verses, what was one word that kept repeating itself over and over and over again? Blessing right? Five times to be exact. The word blessed or blessing appears in that short little paragraph. Now this is both kind of geeky and interesting. Up until this point in Gen uh, to, to Genesis 12, so through the end of Genesis 11, the word curse has been used five times. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, as the, the fall of humanity, if you will, from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11, the word curse has been used five times. And right here in Genesis 12, five times in this short little paragraph, the word bless or blessing is used. It's almost as if that God is beginning to reverse the curse, if you will. That what is God's response to human rebellion? What is God's response to the sin that, God, that humans have unleashed in God's good world? What is God's response to the violence and bloodshed that we've read about these past few weeks from Genesis 3 to 11? Well, it's to take one family. And to begin this process of through this family, blessing this family, so that they can be a blessing to the nations. Now, in context, who are the nations? In context, who are the peoples of the world? Well, the previous chapter, the peoples of the world are the, the folks from the Tower of Babylon. The ones that have set their hearts and minds to achieve this great name for themselves. To rebel against God. And God's response is to take Abraham and his family and to bless the nations. To bless the nations, which gets us to a couple things that we really, I think, we need to drill down on from this paragraph. Two things in particular. The first is this. If Abraham is going to be chosen to be this family of blessing, 
let's talk about this concept of God choosing for a second. Now, for some of us, this concept of God choosing one, kind of, for some of us, for about half of us, makes us really excited. And for the other half of us, makes us kind of nervous. Because it kind of invokes all these questions of, why is God choosing this person and not that person? And now, this is a, you know, a theological thing that people talk about for, for centuries. Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers to it. But notice this. This concept of God choosing. God choosing in particular the family of Abraham. Is it to the exclusion of others? No. God is going to choose Abraham so that, not so that he can just kind of, you know, drink a mimosa or lie by himself and just relax all day. No, he's choosing Abraham so that he can be a blessing to the rest of the world. Put it like this. God chooses the one to be a blessing to the many. And so it's important to understand this, that this concept of choosing is not so much for us to kind of sit around and debate who's in, who's out, why is God choosing this person, not that person? No. The point, and I'm, I would love to have that conversation. I love those kinds of conversations, by the way. But the point, though, is that biblically speaking, this concept of God choosing is about mission and vocation. It's about God partnering with humans to spread and represent his name and blessing to the rest of the world. It's kind of like one Old Testament scholar I really like, Carmen Joy Imes, talks about it like a game of blob tag. I remember growing up as kids, I don't know if, I used to always play blob tag in the neighborhood. And blob tag is this concept where one person is chosen or it, right? And that person runs around and tags other people, and so that blob becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So that more people are now chosen and it, if you will. And I think a similar thing is happening biblically where God is going to choose the family of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Not so, again, Abraham just kind of hangs out with God by himself, has a quiet time, and never blesses anyone else. No, the point of the story, again, through the rest of the narrative arc of Scripture, is that through the family of Abraham, which will become Israel, and eventually culminate in the person of Jesus, that the blessing of God would flow to the rest of the world. This is what Jesus and Paul have on the brains when Jesus, at the end of Matthew's gospel, says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. This is why the book of Revelation ends with every tribe, tongue, and nation blessing and praising God around the throne room of heaven. The story that starts with Abraham and his family ends with worldwide blessing to all the peoples of the world. So now, that's the first thing I wanted to highlight. God's choosing. God chooses Abraham to be blessing, a blessing, this is the second thing I want to talk about, God's blessing. Now, the word bless or blessing, that's a churchy word, right? Like hashtag blessed. You know, what are we actually talking about when we're talking about being blessed? Is it like what Chance the Rapper says when the praises go up, the blessings come down? Like what are we actually talking about when we talk about blessing? Now, the point of this story, the point of this narrative is to get this key concept through, that through, that, let me put it to you like this. Is Abraham meant to just hold on to and contain God's blessing that he's going to be given to? Is it just meant for himself? No. The point of the Abraham story in Genesis 12 is that as God blesses Abraham, that Abraham would not be a container of God's blessing, but Abraham would be a conduit of God's blessing. Here's the difference. A container just does that. It contains it just keeps it to itself. 
But a conduit allows the blessing in this case to flow through to Abraham, yes, but to flow through him so that it might go to others. And this is a key and fundamental concept. Maybe another way to put it is this. That Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. Again, this is why, looking at this passage in particular, Genesis chapter 12, we miss this. We miss what the rest of the narrative arc, especially the Old Testament, and culminating in the New Testament is all about. That this is God's heart and desire to bring about redemption to the whole world. And that God's vehicle and God's design is going to be through the family of Abraham so that this blessing might go forth to the rest of the world. Now, talked about God's choosing, talked about God's blessing. Now let's pause here for a second and let's talk a little bit about Abraham. Because at to this point, you might be forgiven for thinking that Abraham is just like this amazing, upstanding, just hero of the faith, right? That Abraham's almost like this godlike figure, almost perfect, and has no flaws at all, right? Is that Abraham? No. Not one bit. And this is important. We need to talk about this. As we continue on through the the Abraham narrative, which is actually about 10 chapters in the book of Genesis, Genesis 12 through 22, you'll notice time and time again that even though God is going to bless Abraham so that he can be a blessing to the nations, Abraham has moments, a ton of moments of failure. That Abraham is not actually the hero of the story. God is. That in spite of of Abraham's failures, God remains faithful. And we need to get this. We need to understand this. Let me ask it to you like this. Is Abraham a good guy or bad guy? He's a guy. Let me put it to you like that, right? See, the line between like a good guy, bad guy in the Bible is actually, besides Jesus, kind of fuzzy, right? Sometimes, especially these Old Testament characters, you know, just these past couple nights, we've been reading through our children's Bible with Cason and Sienna. And we've been actually, just kind of coincidentally, I guess, going through the Abraham stories with them. And every children's Bible, at least that I'm aware of, that talks about the Abraham stories, always portrays Abraham in like this positive light. You know, no flaws, a man of great faith, he trusts God. Maybe there's that one story where he kind of laughed a little bit at God, but other than that, that's about as like, you know, detailed as it gets in kids' Bibles as to what exactly Abraham did from Genesis 12 to 22. Are any, any of you with me with that? And now here's the thing. I grew up in church, and I'm so thankful for that. But oftentimes, a lot of these Old Testament stories, in particular Abraham, Abraham was presented as like this hero of the faith. And again, that's not 100% wrong. There were songs about this, right? Father Abraham had many sons. You know that song, right? And so Abraham's like put on this pedestal, if you will. And sometimes we think of these biblical characters as these great sort of models to live after. And sometimes sermons like this will be kind of turn into like, have faith like Abraham. Trust God like Abraham, which again, that's not 100% wrong. But I want to pause here for a second and kind of help us reframe how we think about some of these Old Testament characters. And we're going to get back to the blessing part towards the end. Does that, does that sound like a plan? So, well, at least for me, that's been kind of helpful. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project talks about these Old Testament characters as being mirrors, not models. Mirrors, not models. Now, what's the difference? 
A model is something that you just kind of go after and emulate nonstop, right? Growing up, I loved sports. I loved baseball. So like Ken Griffey Jr. and Ichiro, those are like my models and my heroes. And I would like, you know, mimic their batting stances and try to pretend like I was them growing up, wear their jerseys. And so it was like this, almost like this copycat sort of thing. That's what a model kind of was in that world for me. But a mirror is different. A mirror allows us to see ourselves in some of these characters, both the good and the bad. The moments of great faith and the moments of great failure. Because if we're honest, we're all a mixed bag. We all have moments of great faith. These moments where it's like we hear God's voice, kind of like in Genesis 12. We feel really close to God. We're experiencing the presence of God. And then in the very next story, the very next day, the very next hour, it's like it never happened. We stumble. We fall. It's like that old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, and here's the thing. Abraham is just like it, like, like us in that way. You know, on one hand, Abraham has these moments of great faith. In fact, the book of Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, reflects back on the Abraham story and says in Hebrews 11, verse 8, that Abraham trusted God even though he, quote, did not know where he was going. Think about that for a second. Trusting God even though he did not know where he was going. Hebrews 11, verse 8. Now, how many of you this past year have felt like, I have no idea where the heck I'm going? And how many of you have felt like it is really hard to trust God in a season like this where I have no idea what next week is, let alone what tomorrow is going to bring? And perhaps a gentle challenge of the Abraham story is to, in one sense, yes, see it as a challenge to trust God in a season like this that is full of uncertainty. And to recognize and lean on God's faithfulness to his people in the past as an anchor for us in the present. That God has led people through uncertainty for millennia and has yet to fail his people. And for us today, we can glean encouragement from that. In our moment of uncertainty, in our moment of not knowing where we are going, we can rest and trust in the promises and faithfulness of God. Just like we sang just a few moments ago. So on one hand, yes, this mirror allows us to see these great moments of faith, but also to see these moments of failure. Abraham has a ton of moments of failure. In Genesis 12, he has a couple. But the big one I want to point out is Genesis 15 and 16. In Genesis 15, it's like the second kind of mountaintop moment with God, where God reiterates his promise again to Abraham. God tells Abraham basically, you know what, Abraham, even if you break your side of the covenant, even if you break your side of the promise, I will bear the consequences of that. And God in Genesis 15 tells Abraham, I'm going to be faithful I'm going to give you descendants as more numerous than the stars. And all Abram has to do is trust. That's Genesis 15. But the very next story, literally the very next story in Genesis 16, and notice how these stories are side by side. I think this is intentional by the author of Genesis to put these stories side by side. Genesis 16 is that infamous story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. We're right after hearing the promises and faithfulness of God. The very next story, Sarai has this brilliant idea, Abraham's wife. Hey, you know what? We're way too old to have kids. This isn't going to work out. So why don't we do God's will, but in our way? How many of you have been in moments like that? Where you want to do God's will, but then you do it in your own way. And so Sarah's brilliant idea is, you know what? I have this maidservant, really technically that's the word for slave, Hagar. 
This Egyptian slave, Hagar, here's a great idea. Why don't you sleep with her and we can make God's promises come on our own terms? It's the exact same thing that the Tower of Babylon folks were doing, trying to achieve something on their own. Abraham is actually not that much different from the folks at the Tower of Babel, trying to achieve something on one's own terms. And in that, in that story in Genesis 16, the verbiage is almost identical to Genesis 3 in the garden, where Abraham listens to the voice of his wife Sarah, just like Adam listened to the voice of his wife Eve. And Sarah and Abraham see Hagar and take her, just like Adam and Eve saw and took the fruit in Genesis 3. It's Genesis 3 on repeat again and again. It's the fall story, but this time it's Abraham and Sarah at the center. And here's the thing. Despite the, the, the failure and the lack of faithfulness of Abraham, God is still going to be faithful. Because in the very next chapter, in Genesis 17, God reiterates his faithfulness again to Abraham just after Abraham failed. And here's the point I'm trying to make. That yes, Abraham has been chosen to be a blessing to the nations. We have been a part and adopted into the family of God to be a blessing to those in our lives. But if we're honest, we're consistently inconsistent. And we have moments of failure and mistrust, just like Abraham did. The mere model thing, right? Allowing to see that in our own lives and to recognize that we are not the hero of the story. God is. Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament, when we are faithless... He is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Which leads us to Jesus. Because to read the Abraham story is not to read it as like this kind of moral lesson to be like Abraham. It's to read it in such a way where we see, yes, our faith and our failure. To see how God is going to bring about his covenant blessing and promises through this family. But ultimately to recognize that this promise, this act of faithfulness on the part of God is going to be culminated in him, in the person of Jesus. This is how the New Testament writers look back and think of the Abraham story. In particular, one example, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, Paul writes in Galatians 3 that God, listen to this, God preached the gospel to Abraham. I mean, how is that for like thinking about gospel? How New testament of a word is that? Paul says in Galatians 3, God preached the gospel to Abraham saying, through you, quoting Genesis 12, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now are we beginning to see how if we don't see Genesis 12, how vital it is? It's again, you know I think this is cheesy, this is the, you know, multiple times I'm saying this. It's like watching the new Star Wars movies without actually seeing and recognizing the old ones. And that to recognize that Paul understands that the storyline finds its fulfillment not in Abraham's faithfulness, not in David's faithfulness, not in Moses' faithfulness, not in Solomon's faithfulness, but in the faithfulness of God in the person of Jesus. That, God, that Paul says to the church in Galatia, that God preached the gospel, the good news to Abraham, saying through your family all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And to recognize that as God's people, Paul says that we have been adopted and chosen and blessed as well. That we have been invited into this blessing, this family, to not just be a container of this blessing, but to be a conduit of it to the rest of the world. Now as we kind of think about this for a second, we need to recognize that on one hand, Jesus is the same, the book of Hebrews says, yesterday, today, and forever. He is the faithful one. He is the one that we rest in, that we trust in, that we lean on, 
especially in times like this. And at the same time, we are invited to respond to God's faithfulness. We are invited to respond to God's blessing in our lives. And so I want to bring this back to this concept of blessing for us in our everyday life, for us in the way that we think about relating to one another. How might Genesis 12 speak into that? How might this concept of being blessed to be a blessing, a conduit of God's blessing, impact our everyday life? Now, we talk actually about blessing quite a bit at Wellspring. If you've been around here for any length of time, we have our discipleship acronym ABLE, right? A for attend, attending to the voice of God. B for bless. We'll get to that in a second. L for learn, learning from the scriptures. And E for eat, what it means to be in community, eating together with people both inside and outside the church. Let's come back to this concept of B for blessing. We We ask you guys, we ask each other all the time, what does it look like? To be the people of God who are both a blessing to those inside and outside the church. A people where we're not just containing all this for ourselves, but we're being a conduit. We're being blessed to be a blessing to those both inside and outside. It's a question that I hope, especially this week, thinking about Genesis 12, we spend some time really reflecting on that. Who are those people and relationships, those friends, family members, people both inside and outside the church, that perhaps God is leading you to, in, in varieties of different ways, to be a blessing to those people. You know, maybe to kind of help with this, kind of speaking as from a, more of a live example from my own life. You know, a few weeks ago when I was teaching, I mentioned that we were kind of in a moment as a family where we were just kind of tired and stressed, kind of really mainly around trying to find a new house. And our landlords were wanting to sell, and we didn't really know what was going to happen. And it's been this, you know, I don't know, four or five, six-month process of trying to find a place, and it's been like dead end after dead end. That was a few weeks ago. Well, since then, and I've, since sharing that especially, I have personally, and I mean this, have really experienced the blessing from you as a church. People reaching out, texting, emailing, coming up to me after service, saying that we're praying for you. People texting me pictures of different rentals and places and trying to help us out in any way. And then, you know what, we actually found a spot. And we moved into a new house just a few, just last weekend actually. I'm getting my, t- my time's all messed up. And God has been faithful to that. And so many of you were a part of that, praying for, bringing us meals and helping us move, all sorts of things. And it's got me in this moment of thinking, especially about this text, thinking about that I have experienced God's blessing through so many of you. And as, especially as we enter into what I'm kind of considering this new season for us as a family, in a house that I hope we can be in for many years here in PG, how can we use the gifts and the talents and the resources and the the friendships so that we can not just hold this for ourselves but use it to bless other people. And thinking about, what about for you and for your life? Where has God been faithful to you? Where are the gifts and the talents and the stories and the relationships and the prayers and the words of wisdom that God has given you that you might impart to others, that you might bless and share others? Now, I want to kind of go down a little deeper with this as well. Because here's the thing, I've just been really experiencing this these past few days. That I've been thinking about, like, what does it mean to actually be a blessing? I've also kind of been confronted with this idea of, you know what? There's things in my life that get in the way of me being a blessing to others. Mostly to do with it in my own heart. My own selfishness, my own, you know, I, I really, in particular about my time, it's a resource that I, I kind of covet for myself. And 
kind of what are the areas where that might actually get in the way of being a blessing to others? And in particular, this past week has been kind of crazy for us. We've been moving, unpacking boxes. And I was talking with my wife, Cheyenne, the other night after the kids went to bed. And she was sharing with me some things that she felt God was sharing to her. And it was really convicting. And so I just invite you into this space a little bit with me. Is that she was saying that we've been just so busy unpacking boxes, trying to get this done, that picture frame hung up, this moved over here. And we've been in this mode of trying to get things done. Trying to be productive. And she had this line where she was saying that, you know what? We have to begin asking ourselves this question. What is our productivity actually producing? What is our productivity actually producing? Yeah, we might have gotten some things checked off our list. But if relationally, as a family, the kids maybe feel a little distant and ignored, well, that productivity is producing perhaps anxiety and stress and relational disconnection. And that productivity maybe is kind of getting us so focused on tasks that we're forgetting about people. And that productivity is preventing us, in a, in a sense, from actually being a blessing to just within our own family. And I think sometimes, maybe this isn't for all of you, but I know it is for me, that we get kind of in this mode of I want to get this done and get that done. And we kind of idolize, if you will, this, this, this concept of being productive. And that can prevent us from actually being a blessing to other people. Because I want my productivity, productivity is not bad, but I want my productivity to actually produce blessing in the lives of the people around me. And perhaps that maybe is something for you. That what might be getting in the way of actually being a blessing to those around you. Now, for maybe for, hopefully for all of us, here's kind of one last kind of practical thing to land the plane here. One last thing that you maybe you're wondering, okay, how on earth do I begin to live a life where I might be a blessing to other people? How might I begin to actually have this practice of being a person that's not just a container of God's blessing, but a conduit of God's blessing? Now let me end with this. We actually kind of sang about this earlier. There's this beautiful passage from the book of Numbers. And yes, that's the name of a biblical book, the book of Numbers. Not that exciting of a title, but the book of Numbers in, in Numbers chapter 6, the last few verses. There's this beautiful blessing starting in about verse 24. And it's this blessing that was given to the children of Israel and by extension to us as well. And that perhaps this might be a way where you begin this week by going, looking, you can just write it down for right now. Number 6, verse 24 and the verses following. That you meditatively and slowly reflect over this, you know, two or three verses this week. And as God brings people to mind, you pray and, and sing this blessing over them. And it goes something like this, that the Lord bless you and keep you. Now, what person is God bringing to mind in that moment? That God, you would bless and keep. Keep is kind of this biblical concept of protection. That God, you would bless and protect that person. That God, you would be gracious to this person. You would be gracious to us. That, God, your face, your presence would shine upon us. Throughout Scripture, the concept of God's face shining on his people was this, this way of speaking about God's presence being revealed in one's life. That, God, you would reveal yourself. That you would bless us with your presence. That you would be gracious to us. That your face would shine upon us. And that last line, in these days, I always like kind of think about it, particularly for our moment. In these days, God, you would give us peace. Who might God be bringing to mind as you pray through the end of number six? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious to you 
and may his face shine upon you. And that in these days in particular, these crazy, uncertain, anxious days, that God would give us his peace, the peace that only he can bring, the peace that only comes from him, the peace that surpasses understanding, would guard our hearts and minds. Friends, there's so many things that can distract us and get us off, off track. So many things that are vying for our attention. So many things that lead to anxiety and worry and stress. But God, may your peace, may you bless us graciously with your peace that surpasses understanding. And to remind us that this is an act of God's gracious faithfulness to us. That God is the impetus behind this. That when we are faithless, God is faithful. With that, let me pray for us. God, we, we love you. We thank you. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to each and every one of us. Thank you for the story of Abraham that we might in some way, shape, or form see ourselves in both these moments of great faith and these moments of great failure. And to recognize that despite of that, God, you have allowed us to be a part of your story, to be a blessing to those around us. So God, give us the creativity and the imagination and the words and the wisdom to be a people that don't just live for ourselves, but live so that we might be a blessing to others, even those who might be against us. Jesus, you told us that we were to bless those who even curse us. To bless those who might be coming against us. So God, maybe that's for some of us this morning. There's a relationship that perhaps is broken. There's a relationship that maybe has gone sideways. But God, that you would give us the courage, the strength, God, to at least begin in one small step to pray blessing in that, in that way. So, God, we love you. We thank you. We ask, God, for more of your favor and grace in our lives. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen.